to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Today, uh, as we looked at last week, we started a new series in the letter of James. And so as I talked about then, James is a letter that was written by the Apostle James to churches spread out all across the world, Christians who have been spread out due to persecution. And as we see him writing this, it was, this was written as a letter of encouragement. It was written as a letter of wisdom to a people who are struggling with persecution and uh, just trials in everyday life. And so we looked at how God gives us the tools and the wisdom that we need to flourish in a world that is full of trials and trouble full of all these awful things, that we have a gospel, we have, we have good news that isn't just for good days. We have good news that gets us through the worst of days because we have a steady, faithful God. And so everything we face in this life, every trial that we face, every, every struggle, every stumble is meant to draw us closer to God and that God uses those things to craft a deeper holiness in us, and the key to this is seeing that, that, that as we put our faith into practice, we need wisdom to do so. And so wisdom, as we talked about last week, is taking God's truth and applying it to life. So taking the truth of God's word about who he is and what he's done and applying it to every aspect of our lives. So we believe that we have wisdom from God's word about relationships and about, about what we do for work and what we do for fun, how we face hardship, all of that God gives us wisdom for, but oftentimes there's a disconnect between what we believe and what we do. There's a disconnect between knowing God is good and trusting God is good. There's a disconnect between knowing that God is faithful and will see us through and our tendency to turn toward other things to satisfy our souls. And so we see this disconnect, and I believe that this disconnect deep down is that we have a trust issue. We are people with trust issues. We don't easily trust. I'm a naturally skeptical person about new technology. I am not an early adopter, which should probably surprise you that I like God called me to start churches, right? Start new things. I don't tend to be an early adopter. So when like when the iPhone first came out, I was like, that's never gonna catch on. That's never gonna, that's, no, that's not gonna catch on. People are like, it will change your life. I'm like, nope, don't believe you. I, I, I'm just not an early adopter. I often just think it's too good to be true. I'm kind of a skeptic like that. I just don't believe that this thing is actually going to be better or change my life. I tend to be the person who waits and sees. I'm like, give me like iPhone version like nine. I wanna make sure this thing's actually gonna stick, right? I've been burned too many times in my life. I tend to read a lot of reviews and I read the bad reviews. I don't look at the good reviews because you know people just click. I wanna see the bad reviews. Why don't people like this thing? And I think many of us approach God like that. We tend to be, we don't tend to be early adopters on his promises. We tend not to trust. We hear the commands of his faithfulness. We see his promises and we're just like, you know, I'm just not sure. And I think this is one reason that the Bible was written is that we get to see the faithfulness of God again and again and again and again. That our hearts, which are slow to trust God, can see that he is good and we can read the reviews the reviews of God's faithfulness and his timelessness to us, that he's been faithful before and he'll be faithful again. And because he is trustworthy, because we can trust him at his word, we can believe that his word will lead us to life. 
He's been faithful before. And this is why the scriptures are described as leading to life. And so if you look at the way that the psalmist described the law, the Torah, we under, he, under, he described it as something that we were to long after with all of our joy, with all of our hope, with all of our longing, believing that it would satisfy us. And as we apply it, which is living on faith, taking God's word and applying it, we would find Life, And this is why I believe the, the middle verse of this passage, verse 12, where it says, blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love. And that's why I believe we can trust that. We can trust that God has blessedness for us. And that word blessed, if you look at it in the Greek, is the word makarios. And the word makarios means happy or flourishing or to live the good life. And the way that I remember this is when I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, there's a restaurant there, a Lebanese restaurant called Makarios. And they had the best shawarma that I've ever had in my life. And so I really do believe that eating shawarma is the good life. So Makarios, blessed shawarma, uh, that's how I remember this. And we've seen this idea before in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted or face trials like those in James are facing. And what's being said in the Sermon on the Mount, what's being said here is that there's a way of living that seems completely upside down to us that actually leads to life, that actually leads to our flourishing. And in fact, the very trials that God allows to come into our life are the thing that he's, are, that he's using to grow us and to shape us and to deepen our trust in him. And as he deepens our trust, we see that this is a matter of loving God, a matter of loving God, and it's a matter of what you love the most because you will trust what you love because your trust always follows your love. You will follow after what you know and what you love and, and because our hearts are designed to hitch themselves to something to love. They're designed to, to hitch themselves, much like if you were to drive a trailer, if you put a, a, a boat on a trailer or on the back of a truck, wherever the truck goes, the trailer follows. Whatever we love, our trust will follow it. And so James is putting this to the test, saying that those who love God and, and trust him and trust his promises will find the blessed life. And it's a, he says that if we will give our whole hearts to him, we'll see this. But before we can truly love God, we have to know God. We have to know who God is. And the first thing we see, and we're gonna kind of look at this passage a little bit kind of inverted. We're gonna look at this a little bit different so we can see it with fresh eyes. And the first thing we need to look at is what this tells us about God. What did these nine verses tell us about who God is and what he's done? Because we first need to know him because if we don't know him, we'll never trust him. Now, for example, if, if a stranger walks up to you and gives you candy or your grandmother offers you candy, those are different responses, right? We've known from like little, like being very little that you should not take candy from a stranger. I remember Halloween every single year. It's like, don't take candy from strangers. Don't get the candied apple. There's razor blades in it. You can't trust those people. But you would trust your grandmother, right? If she gave you a candied apple, I would hope so. You could trust your grandmother. It's who's offering you that that makes you trust it. It's who you know. And the Bible is unique because as Nate said, I told him, I said, man, you actually just set my sermon up so well this morning. Uh, as, as, you, as we see the Bible, the Bible is unique because we have a God who wants us to know him. He's not just transcendent. He's not just holy. He's not just larger than us. He is imminent and close to us. He, he wants to know us. 
He wants us to know him. And this is why the call we see in Psalm 46 that is so difficult for us to do, but to be still and know that he's God. We see the call in Psalm 27 to to seek his face, which means to know him intimately. And then Jeremiah 31, 34, the promise of the new covenant, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And this promise of him wanting to know us helps us when God feels distant. When God feels far off or God feels like he's far off away from us. And he calls us to long after him because he will be found. And so here's a few things that this text tells us that we know about God. The first is that God is good. God is good. And what does that mean? What does it mean that God is good? I think it means two things. It means one, that he's the standard. And then secondly, it means he's what satisfies He's the standard of all that is right and good. And he is, because the Bible says he's perfect in all his ways. He's perfect in his holiness, in his love. He's perfect in his might and his grace. All that is right and good, God is the standard of this. He is, he is the measuring stick. And I think many times when we think about God and we think about our objections to the Bible, our struggles with the Bible about what God says is right or good or just or loving is that we are taking God and measuring him against our standard of goodness, against our standard of holiness, against our standard of love or of mercy instead of doing the opposite. But if God is the standard, it's kind of like if you take a ruler. Now, like I could try to walk off, you know, 50 feet down the aisle here. But if I were to take a ruler or I were to take a tape measure, no matter what I do, the tape measure's right, right? The tape measure is the standard for what a foot is or what 50 feet is. And I have to adjust my perspective and my ideas of what 50 feet would be to what the standard is. In the same way, God is the standard of all that is right and is good. But not just when it comes to what's right and good, but also to what beauty is. So I want you to take a minute. We're gonna take it to be a little thought experiment. Let me stretch some of you a little bit. I want you to imagine the most beautiful mountain that you've ever seen. In fact, if you need to close your eyes, go ahead, just don't go to sleep. Close your eyes. I want you to get an image in your head of the most beautiful mountain that you've ever seen. Everybody got it? Lock it in there. For me, it was seeing Denali. I got to go to Alaska. I got to live there for a while. I did summer missions there in, in, uh, in, this, in, uh, in college. And I remember one morning we were gonna go through Denali and we stopped at this little place to eat pancakes. And I'm getting to eat pancakes, sourdough pancakes, and look at Denali in all of its majesty. And so now when you think about that mountain, get it, get it in your head. Anytime you see another mountain, you're comparing it to that mountain. Anytime I see a mountain, I immediately compare it to Denali. And what eventually happens is that your mind begins to drift toward that standard of what is most beautiful. Your mind, that one mountain, will point you toward the greater mountain. See, our hearts are designed in such a way that any goodness or truth or beauty that we see or experience or hear are meant to point us toward the standard of what is true and beautiful and good. And this changes the way that we see the gifts that God brings into our life. Verse 17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It means that when we face temptation, 
We don't see that as an evil gift from God because God doesn't tempt us towards evil. But we begin to realize that the trials that God brings into our life are meant for our good, not for our, our, our destruction. They're, they're, God has no evil intention. And so we see how these trials and the struggles and our suffering are meant to lead to our growth and even how God will use the evil that enters into our life for our good. You see this in the story of Joseph in Genesis. We'll cover this when we start going through Genesis in the fall. But Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery, worst brothers ever. They sell him into slavery and, uh, and, and he goes through all of these trials and all of these tribulations and eventually ends up leading as the number two over all of Egypt he has the opportunity to get revenge against his brothers, but yet uses it as an opportunity to save them. And he says that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is constantly giving us good gifts because of his goodness. But not only is he the standard, he's also, because he's the standard, he is what is meant to satisfy our souls. That's why Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I don't know about you, but I have this real joy in helping others find really good things to eat. I love food. I really love food. So when people come, hey, what restaurant should I go to? I'm like, oh, let me tell you. And so one of my favorite things when friends come to visit Boston is like, we're going to the North End and we're getting a cannoli. And if you've never had a cannoli, I want to see you eat a cannoli because I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I think that's about as close as we can get in this life to understanding that, right? That's the great metaphor. The taste and see and the enjoyment upon their face. When, when, the, when they eat that, it's, just, it's, it's amazing to watch. God wants us to see and savor that he's good. To see and savor that he's good. And not just that he's good, but that he truly is the only one who could satisfy us. Because everything else we turn to could never be enough. If you look at John chapter four, you see the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she comes to the well at the, at the height of the day. She comes at noon because she doesn't wanna be around anybody else. She is bearing a lot of weight and a lot of shame. And Jesus meets her there providentially, like meets her in this place. And as he meets her there, um, he, he offers her living water. He says, I have living water that you will never thirst again. And so she kind of misses the metaphor. She's thinking about real water. And Jesus begins to kind of pierce through the veil of, of the kind of the tough exterior she had around her and began to pull back the pieces of her story and says, he says, where's your husband? And she said, well, I, I have no husband. He said, you're right, you've had five. He actually exposes all the cheap alternatives that she had been looking for safety and comfort and security and satisfaction from. And he says, I can offer you something that will never leave you thirsty. Tim Chester says, if you look for satisfaction or fulfillment anywhere other than in Jesus, then you will be left empty. If you look for meaning or identity anywhere else, then you will be left disappointed. There may be a moment of refreshment or pleasure, but you will soon be thirsty again. You'll soon be dissatisfied, unhappy, unfulfilled, lost, and empty. But Jesus offers a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, you need never, ever be thirsty again. There's something that each of us is tempted to run to to satisfy us. There's something, but let's turn to Jesus who truly satisfies. So we see that God is good, but also God is unchanging. God does not change. Why can we trust God when our circumstances fall apart? It's because he never changes. Meaning his, his goodness and his goodness to us does not cease when our perception of his goodness does. 
And I think this may actually be the most important characteristic of God that you and I can hang on to when we face trial and tribulation is the fact that God does not change. We see at the second half of verse 17, it says that these good gifts, they're coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This was creation language, the idea of the Father of lights creating the light in the world. This, this, it talked about his power. And this is kind of a solar metaphor. The, 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 the idea of changing would be like, you have sun during the day, you have the moon during the night. But the idea here is that God does not change like that. He, he never, there's never variation. There's no wobbling or wavering on his love for us. And we see this in the covenant promises of Israel, which is a good promise to us because like Israel, you and I mess up over and over and over again. And we, we never see a moment in, in the Old Testament where God just kind of throws his hands up and says, I'm done. I'm done with you guys. That's the very last time that I'm gonna be gracious to you. God's grace to us doesn't change based on a whim or on culture or on popular opinion. I mean, like in our culture, we can't figure out whether butter is good for us or not, right? Like 50 years ago, it was like, butter is bad, eat margarine. Then it's like, no, margarine will give you cancer. It's like plastic. Now it's, you should eat butter again. And I'm like, praise God, we're just gonna eat butter. We're gonna go for it. We'll meet Jesus. God doesn't change like that. He's He's unchanging. And we see this in two ways. I and mean, this actually, actually helps us see the distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness because not only is God unchanging in his goodness, he's unchanging in his standard. If he is the standard of all this right and holy and good, then that doesn't mean that God can belittle that in order to accept our half measures. It doesn't mean that God is grading on a curve. It doesn't mean that we could be pretty good and that God will relax his good and holy standard and say, that's enough. But also we see that God's commitment to us to redeem us through the cross is also unchanging. We see that at the cross, both his holiness and his love are satisfied. And we see his unchanging purpose to call sinners like you and I to him through the work of Christ. So God is good, he's unchanging, but he's also gracious. He shows us his grace. Verse 18, why does God rescue us? Why does God call us forth? It doesn't say in verse 18, because you're good enough. It doesn't say because you've done enough. It doesn't say because you've sacrificed enough. It says of his own will. Of his own will. Not because you have it all together, but because out of his good will and pleasure, he chose to give his son for you. Out of his good, unchanging graciousness, that it was his will, as Isaiah said, to crush his very own son in our place. And what you, that should do when you see the goodness and the unchanging nature of God, you see the graciousness of God, is it should make you think, how could I not love him? How could I not love the one who died for me? How, how could I not love someone who has loved me this much? And what it begins to do is it begins to change the narrative for us because it no longer becomes about us approaching God wondering if we're good enough because we realize we're not. We realize that, I mean, I change all the time. My, my heart is so fickle that one minute I wanna please God and the next minute I wanna you know, just, just do whatever I wanna do. But that God brings us to himself by the word of truth, by the gospel, that we were that sinful, but yet he's that gracious. 
that, that there's no person who's so bad that they, don't, they can't be saved, and there's no person so good that they don't need a savior, that Jesus gave himself on the cross for us. And we see how this is juxtaposed and put in, in, in kind of uh, juxtaposed between God's unchanging word of truth, his gracious word of truth, and the false promises of sin that are constantly changing, that the goalposts are constantly moving, that the rules are constantly changing on us, but yet we see the steady promise of God's faithfulness to us in Christ. And the purpose of this, we see at the end of verse 18, is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, there are two ways to look at this idea of being the first fruits. First is the idea of first, being important. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, that God created only us in his image, in such a way that we're to reflect his character to others. We're to reflect his glory to all creation. But also the idea of being brought forth as a type of first fruits is this idea of being redeemed and being taken and being set aside. And in the Old Testament, you saw this imagery of the first fruits. It was always about taking the best and setting it aside for God. So when they made a sacrifice, they were, you weren't to take the last 10% of your crops that like the, the ear of corn's all hanging over to the side. You're to take the very best. You weren't to take the weak animals to sacrifice. You were to take the very best. And what God is doing in us is he's taking the pinnacle of his creation, saving us through Jesus and setting us aside for God. And in doing this, it's a, in calling us to himself and redeeming us we see all creation will one day sing and say, look at what God has done. We revel in this grace. Do you, do you see how good he is? Do you see that he's unchanging? Do you see that he's gracious? And when we think about that, is there any doubt that God is a good gift giver? Is there any doubt that he wants good for you? that the gifts he's given you are out of his good character. And what this helps us do is it helps us see the trials of life rightly and helps us see the gifts that he gives. So let's take a minute and let's unpack what those gifts are. Now we have fresh eyes to look at this text. The first thing we see in, in the very first couple of verses is that we've received a new status. We've received a new status in Christ. And as James is writing this, he's writing this right into the middle of everyday life because they lived in a world that was all about status. And we live in a similar world that is all about our status, about what we do and about how much money we make. In fact, there were studies done several years ago where they took pictures of individuals. And with one group, they had a group of people who uh, were all wearing like clothing that would have been, you know, like white collar attire. And they took another group of people and they had pictures of them and they were, it was like in blue collar attire. And so they took those pictures and they showed it to one test group. And then they took the pictures and they flipped the clothing on the people and showed it to another test group. And what they found through that was that almost across the board, the people who, were, who appeared to be of higher class, appeared to have a white collar job, were the ones that were considered more attractive and more intelligent. It's incredible, isn't it? That we tend to put such a, a premium on status about our job, about what we do, about our money, about what neighborhood we live in, about where our kids might go to school, about where we might have gone to school, what, what degree is hanging on the wall. And James speaks into this, and we're going to get into a lot of this about the, about the rich later on. He says he has a lot of things to say about the rich. But he parallels the lowly and the rich or the poor and the rich in such a way saying that neither of these earthly statuses matter ultimately. Neither of these earthly statuses define you. 
And, and here, oftentimes in the Bible, the rich is, is kind of a metaphor for the wicked and the poor, for the righteous. But actually what he's describing are two groups of Christian in different social statuses trying to live together as one church, saying you have an identity that supersedes both of those. And the way that you're supposed to interact with that is gonna look a little bit different. He says, but both of you are to boast in this new identity as children of God. You're to boast in this. And so he says to the poor person, to the lowly person, you're to boast in your exaltation. And for the rich, you're to boast in your humiliation. For the poor or the lowly, we see that God has a special heart for the poor. This is across the Bible. And I actually believe that this should inform the way that we as churches and as individuals, I believe as a country even, should approach and address the poor. We have a special heart for them. We see the Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He has a care for the oppressed. Jesus' first words in Luke, his first teaching was a reference to Isaiah 61.1 that that he came to bring liberty to the captive and to bring bring freedom to the poor. What is it? That's a new status. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's saying if you find yourself in an earthly status that often can feel humiliating. If you feel yourself in a status where you feel like you should be doing better than you actually are, understand that you can boast and glory in the status that that God has declared for you, that you're loved as this child. But there are also some words here for the rich. And if you think about the rich, it doesn't necessarily have to be like monetarily rich. But these are people who the the world is yours. I mean, you have options, you're successful, you get a lot of praise at work. You, you're seen as a success by other people and you really don't have a whole lot of problems. The problem with that is the temptation is to boast in that and to say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at where I've arrived. And the call for us, if you find yourself in that place, it says it's humiliation. Now, now understand, it's not shame because Jesus takes our shame. It's not wrong to be rich or successful, but what's being said here is that if you're gonna follow Jesus, you need to count those things like the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Paul was that dude, okay? He was the guy with all the degrees and the pedigree and the family. And he said, I lay it all down for the sake of knowing Jesus. And in fact, if you're gonna follow Jesus in this city, and this is a hard city to be a Christian in, you're gonna have people who think you're foolish for believing what we believe. They may think, why would you believe that? Why, like, I thought you were an intelligent person. Why would you believe in a God? It might cost you professionally. It might cost you influence or relationships with other people, but we are called to count the cost because what we gain in Jesus is of so much greater value. And James says that if you put your hope in your possessions and in your position, you're putting your hope in something that will eventually fade away. We see the weakness and the frailty of this in, the end, in verse 10 and verse 11. It says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he, he will pass away, verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We see the heat of the day sapping up the beauty of these flowers. And what's being said here is that if you're not careful, you're gonna put your hope in something that seems valuable now, but one day will be worthless. 
So during the Civil War, the Confederacy came up with their own money. They came up with their own Confederate dollar, and people began to trade it, and it actually had a lot of value at the beginning of the war. Well, as the Confederacy began to lose, the value of the Confederate dollar began to become less and less and less. And I think at one point, it was 160th of a U.S. dollar. But at the end of the war, what they found is that those Confederate dollars were, were worthless because they had put their hope in something that had no worth, something that would not last. See, beauty, uh, earthly beauty will and praise will fade. Our, our, your pedigree will fade. Your degree will fade. Your, your paycheck will fade. But what we have in Christ is lasting. And so whatever humiliation we may face in this life is worth it for knowing Jesus. The second gift we receive from God is new affections. God gives us something new to love. And so if we trust God is good, we trust that he's unchanging, we trust that he's gracious, we can see what God is trying to do in us through temptation and through trials. And and James says that God does not tempt us in the way that he doesn't tempt us toward evil, but that he uses trials in our life to expose what's already in our hearts. A trial will reveal what is already within you and a temptation will act on your desires based on what that trial exposes. Tim Keller says that the test is the occasion for the failure, but not the cause of the failure. So in eighth grade, I cheated on the only test I ever cheated on in my life. I cheated on an algebra test. So mom, if you're watching, sorry. I cheated on an algebra test in eighth grade. And, and, and I remember I was, I was just desperate. And I look over at my friend's uh, paper because he was smart. And I'm looking at it and, and, I, and I, I got caught. And here's how I got caught. The teacher had three different tests that day. And so I'd written down the answer for the wrong, wrong test. And so she calls me in. She's very gracious. She let me actually let me retake it. She's like, it's very much out of your character. See, the thing is, is that algebra test didn't make me do anything. It just exposed what was already within me. It exposed that I wanted to do well more than I wanted to be honest. That I wanted to get a good grade more than I wanted to show integrity. And the trials that God allows to come in our life are not meant for, our, for evil, but may expose something within us that leads us to lean toward evil. And the trial exposes, what it does is it exposes what we love or what we desire the most. And that's why it says in verse uh, 14 that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word there for desire is an over-desire, something that we love too much, something that we want too much, something that we want more than God, not believing that he's the one that satisfies And so when this comes and when we're facing temptation, when we see this, what we do when we sin is always a reaction to what we want and love the most. We always give ourselves toward what we believe in the moment will give us life. And so that's why verses 14 and 15 describe this in really three metaphors, a luring and enticing and then this giving birth to sin. And so the lure there is literally like a fishing lure. If you've ever gone fishing, you know, you put bait on a hook, you throw it in the water, hopefully you catch fish. Um, Enticing is this idea of, of trying to trap an animal. So this idea of baiting an animal toward a trap And what we see in this, what we see in verse 16 is, do not be deceived. These are deceptions. We cannot trust our desires alone. They'll lie to us and they'll say that this is what you really want. This is what will satisfy you. This is good, not God being good. 
And to kind of tease out that, that fishing metaphor a little more, sometimes it's live bait. If you fish with live bait, you're taking something that is alive that has a hook in it. Sometimes the enemy will use desires within you that are good desires, but yet he'll bait it in such a way that draws you away from God. But sometimes you use artificial lures that are plastic and inauthentic and don't really satisfy us. But if we're not careful, we see this, the third metaphor that as desire implants in us like a pregnancy, it begins up giving birth to sin. And when sin is given fully to itself, it will lead us to death. And so there are desires in us that if we love them too much, will lead us towards sin and death. But one of God's gifts that he gives us as we trust him, as we give our whole selves to him, is he's willing to change our desires. He's willing to reshape our desires. And so we look at verse 18, the idea of a, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is creation language. And, and we see how God does this. If you look at Genesis chapter one, the language there is this idea that God created by bringing chaos into order. It's a very poetic and beautiful picture. What God is doing in us by giving us a new affection, giving us something new to love, is he's making us new. Through the work of the Spirit, he begins to work in our lives and put things in order in such a way that he pulls our disordered desires together that would eventually lead us to death, and he reshapes them to help us long after God. He leads us to life. And in some ways, he, he does this by reordering our desires and reorienting our desires. I don't know if any of you ever had the pain of trying to watch TV with an antenna. Back in the day, children, uh, there was this antenna, this Two pieces of metal you'd stick on top of your TV and you'd have to rearrange them in such a way to make a signal come in. And if you moved the wrong way or you were eating a ham sandwich instead of a turkey sandwich, sometimes the picture would go out. You had to reshape and reorient those antennas in such a way that they pointed toward the signal, which would actually re-scramble and make the picture look like a picture. In the same way, what God is doing in us by giving us new affections is he's reorienting and reordering and reshaping our affections to point us to God. So we begin to see that all God gives us, including the trials that he gives us, are about reordering what you love. And so a trial may expose your anger. It may expose lust or bitterness. And those can be the very things that God uses to reorient them towards him. And you, you begin to see the gap between our response and God's goodness, and it calls you to long after him. Because what we realize is you don't kill an old desire by ignoring it or starving it. You have to replace it. Thomas Chalmers is a Puritan who wrote this book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a, that's a great name. And he said in that book, he said, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object of even more, that's even more beautiful. What God is doing is he's calling us to fix our eyes on Jesus. If we want to change what we love most, we need to fix our eyes on the standard of what is beautiful. And in doing this, we see the third gift that God gives us, which is new life. God came to give you new life. And maybe right now you, you know that you, you're, you've given yourself to your desires in such a way that if you were to stand before God today, that you would be heading towards death. But Jesus says that if we look to him, he'll give us life. John 10, 10 and 11 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Lord laid his life down for you so that you can have new life and let's pray.